good singing you guys did. There was a couple people that were a little pitchy, but for the most part, I, I thought I thought y'all did a pretty good job during that that round. Um, if you're joining us online or uh, watching this later, you got to get back here. We miss it when you sing with us. So um, lots of fun. I found myself kind of soaking up that God is so good. Some of you did too. You were excited and. Then it came to that part of the song where it goes, and should this life bring suffering? And you're like, oh, there it is, right? And then some of you are hearing these people sing, and you're not sure about this whole God thing, and you're like, yeah, that's the, that's the thing. Like, you're saying that God is good, and there's so much suffering around here, right? There's, if God is so good and so great, and there's no one like our God, all these songs that we're singing, which I believe are wholeheartedly true, then this pain and suffering that we see in our world really complicates that. Particularly if you're not a Christian, haven't walked through this journey at all, I, I would just guess, and I mean, I've had conversations with uh, many folks who trying to figure this out, skeptical, I'm glad you're here, no pressure, I'm not trying to convince you of anything, but I would guess and venture to say that some of your hang-up probably is that suffering piece, that this, there's so much pain in this world and so much pain in our lives, and don't understand why kiddos are hurt, and why there's injustice, and the poverty that's going on now, even when we look at our, our country and our world and just see this brokenness all around, it's really easy to pause and go, if there is a God and he says he's in charge, well, maybe we should hire a new God because he's not doing a very good job, right? I mean, there's just, and yet you come to church, you hear people saying God is so good and got the suffering. And so here's the good news for you. We're going we're gonna to tackle that pretty hard today. I'm um, looking at the scriptures, and we're going to be looking at this guy named Joseph. So if you saw the, the cute little graphics and video, we're in this series. In my series, we just mean that we're taking several weeks to kind of walk through something um, um, on the patriarchs. And the, when we think about patriarchs, what we're talking about is these kind of these, these forefathers of uh, this faith system that we have, this uh, Christianity that believes that Jesus is Lord, believes that God is good and proves that through Jesus, believes that God redeems and restores us, all those kind of things, right? It kind of it gets its roots in these, this family, this family unit, long time ago, right? Why well, I'd argue that family is so important, why I'd love to continue to figure out how to help shape families for our church and for our community, think this is extremely valuable because the very first thing that God does is he creates a man and a woman and then he creates marriage and then he creates family and then you see this family unit start to play out. And, um, so we've been working through the Bible and kind of following that story and if you're not familiar with it, it starts in the book of Genesis that literally means beginning, but it's also the word we get for genetics or genes. And so we see this DNA transfer from the very beginning of time, right? And so Adam and Eve, they have kids, who have kids, who have kids, who have kids. And from really early on, first, first sibling group, uh, one murders the other. And for the first 11 chapters of the Bible that covers a, you know, several hundred years, um, it just keeps getting worse and worse. And what we see within human history is that human beings are so broke and so mean and so self-centered. And um, what happens with sin, you kind of see two things happen. The first part of sin is we just say, sin just literally means we like our plan better than God's. Um, so a real good indication of whether or not we live in that is the first part of sin is saying we like our plan better than yours, God. So we'll be in control of our life. Typically the, the major ramification that comes from that, and you can see it all through our world, is when we start seeing other people as um, means to our ends, right? For our pleasure, our gain. So when we start objectifying human beings as someone who can serve us, take care of us, make us happy, all those things is kind of just how, how it kind of plays out in these first 11 chapters where um, 
husband and wife have kids, and they just start leveraging each other for their own gain and their own benefit. You see it even with Adam and Eve when God shows up in the garden and said, um, who did this? Why'd you do this? And the first thing you see in sin is Adam goes, the woman did it, right? Already throws the wife under the bus, already just that uses her for his own protection and gain and pleasure, right? So you see that kind of play out. And so for the first 11 chapters, what you see is just human history is just in a really, really bad situation. And it doesn't get better. And so God hits the reset button, literally with Noah, starts the whole thing over, floods the whole earth, and it doesn't get any better from there. And then something changes in Genesis chapter 12, and that's kind of what we've been looking at, and where God offers us this, this what we call a covenant. That's his words, not ours. And covenant literally means that there are no stipulations. It's not a contract. We don't have to perform. And God basically says, where there has been no way, I will make a way. And that there will be one day where I'll wipe away every tear, take away all the pain, all the sorrow. This world is broken, and there is nothing you can do to keep me from fixing it. So God makes this promise, and it's as good as done. So he makes this promise that he will renew and restore all things. And he decides that he's going to do it through a family. It's pretty neat that he does it through a family because this family is um, dysfunctional, probably even more dysfunctional than your family unit. So it's kind of neat that God decides to take a family that's all sorts of broken and continues to remind us generation after generation that God is still doing what only God can do. He is bending and shaping all things for our good um, and his glory. So we see this promise with this covenant from God and the other terms of covenant we've been talking about, the other term we've been using, you're really going to see that today, is the, the, the word providence. And it literally means two things. It means God sees all things. There's nothing he's not aware of. All that pain, all that sorrow, he sees it. But not only does he see it, he's actually working in it, in it right now. He's, he's working in it. There is nothing wasted. He is a perfect steward. And so we see this with God and these really, really broken families. And this family that he starts with is a, a guy named Abram, uh, who he turns to Abraham. He gives him a name. Abram means uh, uh, father. Abraham means father of many. And so God starts this whole promise, this covenant with Abraham in it. It, it goes bad for them. They make lots of bad decisions. They have kids out of wedlock. They, you know, Abraham impregnates his servants. To all sorts. I mean, it's all sorts of complicated. And they're probably the most normal of all the folks we've been kind of reading about. So Abraham has a couple of children. One of them is named Isaac. And what we see throughout the, these kind of these stories is that in every one of these generations, God um, kind of identifies someone within that, that, that family unit to kind of uh, personify and foreshadow his perfect blessings. So in every one of these things, there's this macro, I mean micro, this little glimpse of what God is actually doing throughout the whole world. And so he does that with Isaac. Then he does it with a guy named Jacob. You can go back and listen more about Jacob. Really, really broken individual, horrible human being. And yet God continues to bless him. And finally, in Jacob's later years, he uh, comes back to God and literally wrestles with God and gets blessed by God and struggles like the rest of us and finally goes, God, you, you, you are good, you're enough. And God literally gives him a, a, a name change. We see that throughout the scriptures where when someone gets a new identity, when they get a fresh start. And so God changes Jacob to the name Israel. You're familiar with that term because it's the, 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 there's a nation named Israel and that starts all the way back hundreds and hundreds and thousands even of years ago. And so Israel has these kiddos. There's 12 of them. And uh, they become the, what's called the 12 tribes of Israel. So these 12 guys are all patriarchs of their own tribe, like their own nation state. I mean, it's a, it's a pretty neat deal. And so Jacob has all these kiddos. And one of them that he has is this guy named Joseph. And Moses, the writer of the book of Genesis, decides to give us the, the, 
the majority of his time focusing on any individual, he focuses on Jacob. I mean, on Joseph. So Genesis chapter 37 through 50 is all about Joseph's life, except for one chapter, and we'll talk about that in a little while. So this whole story is about Joseph. Now remember, this is God giving us a picture of his blessing that's going to come, the way that he's going to bend and shape all things, that he's going to make all of his promises come true. So we see it in this individual, and it starts out really bad. So I want to give you kind of a big overarching picture of Joseph's life, and then over the next several weeks, three or four weeks, we're just going to take our time working back through Joseph's whole story. So here's the big picture right here. You'll see it on video, and then we'll talk about it. So enjoy. So in case you missed it, here's a quick break. 
So, God story, Joseph, there you go. Now you know the whole story, which makes it seem a little bit better that his brothers uh, tried to kill him, then sold him into slavery, and then he got accused of, uh, falsely accused of uh, sexual harassment, gets thrown in jail, then spends a lot of time in jail, then finally gets out, and you're like, oh, not too bad, right? But we're talking about 30, 40, 50 years of a pretty miserable life. So when you look at that, you go, why in the world, would, if God is so good, would he do that with Joseph? Why didn't he just, like, fix all the problems, give, give Egypt what it needs, and just take care of it. Like, what in the world is God up to there? And um, that's what we're going to try to figure out today. I think we'll make some good ground on it. So I'm going to be in the beginning of uh, uh, Genesis chapter 37. I'll be reading and chatting, and so it'll be up on the screens. It'll be fun. I'll be reading from the uh, New International Version uh, today. So here's what happens. Let's see what God's up to. Genesis chapter 37, verse 1. Jacob lived in the land where his father had stayed, the land of Canaan. Remember, Jacob returns, him and his brother, they reconcile, and now he's back there with all of his family, his households, and here he is. Uh, This is the account of Jacob's family life. Remember, this is all about the family and what God continues to do through this, these genetics, through this family's DNA. And so here goes. Joseph, a young man of 17, was tending the flocks with his brothers, the sons of Bilhah and the sons of Zilpah. These are the extra wives that Jacob had, just so you know there. His father's wives, they have great names. And he brought their father a bad report about them. Okay. So here's what we got going on there. We got 12 kids, and we see pretty immediately that Joseph has a good relationship with his dad, and he's a tattletale, right? So one of the things that we think about Joseph is, oh, he's such a good, godly person. He, he endured, and he did all the right stuff. Way to go, Joseph. No, he was a terrible human being. I want to just kind of start there. Joseph wasn't a good person. In fact, every time I've read that until this week, I always thought the bad report was defining the brother's behaviors. Okay, dad, I got a bad report, like a bad report card, you know. That word bad isn't about the behavior. It actually can be translated falsified. It's a falsified report. So literally, Joseph is making up stuff about his brothers that get him in trouble. So he's a tattletale and probably a sociopathic tattletale. You follow this. This is great, great Joseph. We love Joseph. He's the one with the amazing Technicolor dream coat. Yay, hooray, Joseph. No, this story starts out with a punk 17-year-old kid. He is not a nice person. He's not a good human being. He is a liar and a tattletale, and it gets worse. Watch this. Now, Israel, that's Jacob, remember, loved Joseph more than any of his sons. That's not good. Because he had been born to him at his old age. He was 91 when he had this kid. And he made an ornate robe for him. When his brothers saw that their father loved him more than any of them, they hated him and could not speak a kind word to him. So we're going to see really quick here is that um, this is a pretty sinful family, like yours and mine, right? I mean, it's just, they're just not good human beings. They got their own mess, and they bring their own mess into it. And so what we start out with understanding Joseph is a sociopathic tattletale. And now we got a dad who's kind of, creating more drama in the family to make sure that that kid, this isn't, like, this isn't subtle. He's like, hey, all of you, you get nothing. Joseph, you get this really, really expensive coat, right? Like, you should try that with your kids. Like, make all your kids eat vegetables except the one you like and just give them ice cream all the time. See how that turns out, right? 
Some of you have kids like that, right? And you know what that kid's like. Or you had a sibling who was that kid, right? So we have this really messy deal. Jacob has a favorite and creating all sorts of family drama. And the Bible tells us here that Joseph is a sociopathic tattletale. His dad shows favoritism and the brothers hate him. They hate him. Like this is a horrible scenario. And you go, if God's going to pick out a family to do something neat in, this is probably the wrong one. So that's what we know so far. Um, Verse 5, Joseph had a dream. And when he told it to his brothers, they hated him all the more. You want to know about the dream? This is what it says. He said to them, listen to the dream I had. Because they don't want to talk to him, but hey, they want to hear about his dreams. We were binding sheaves of grain out in the field when suddenly my sheaf rose and stood upright while your sheaves gathered around mine and bowed down to it. Yeah, you should try that with your siblings. Hey, one day you're going to kiss my feet. <laughs> right? His brother said to him, remember, he's the baby too, so obnoxious. His brother said to him, do you intend to reign over us? Will you actually rule us? Now watch this. And they hated him all the more because of his dream and what he had said. So he's a sociopathic tattletale who's a bragger and a little bit self-centered. Got that? So he decides to tell this dream. And on top of that, he has zero social or emotional, uh, social awareness or emotional intelligence. Because guess what he decides to do again? He's like, oh, maybe they hate me because they don't really understand what's going to happen. Let me tell them my next dream. Watch this. Then he had another dream and he told it to his brothers. So sociopathic, tattletale, bragger, completely unaware, self-centered, and um, not very smart. Because if you know someone hates you, you don't just go in and try to give them more stuff to hate you for, right? So he's like, hey, you have all sorts of reasons not to like me. Here, let me give you another reason not to. Then he had another dream. And he told it to his brothers. Listen. So that means he's demanding their attention. They don't want to give it. Listen, he said. By the way, whenever you start with listen, oh, people love that. I had another dream, and this time the sun and moon and 11 stars were all bowing down to me. Wow, now the whole universe is bowing down to you, Joseph. When he told his father as well as his brothers, watch this. His father rebuked him and said, what's this dream you had? Will your mother and I and your brothers actually come and bow down to the ground before you? So lots going on here. So Joseph is a tattletale sociopathic liar, um, a braggart, self-centered, not very smart, and has no social awareness, and he decides to do it again. And finally, finally, his dad, who loves him more than anybody else, finally decides to rebuke him, going, okay, Joseph, you're, you're not getting it. So I can remember... I was actually 17. Uh, no, I just turned 18. My parents bought me a, a Zuzu Rodeo um, for a senior year of college. And so it was like I got a couple of weeks before yeah, school um, was out. And I was driving at home one day and someone wrecked into me, right? Like, so someone, I was turned left on to, into my driveway and someone ran right in the back of me. We lived on a pretty busy street. And so I just got in this car, had it a couple of days, and I had to go into the shop. So it goes into the shop and uh, don't have it for two or three weeks. So there's a rental car, that, but the problem was the rental car, I was too young to dra- drive it because I was 18. And so my dad was driving the rental car, which means I had to drive his truck. And his truck was horrific. I mean, it was ugly. It was all broken. It didn't drive very well. It had no air conditioning or power steering. What is this? <laughs> right? So I had to drive it, and it was miserable. And I was so mad because my dad got the nice rental car. Okay? 
So I remember very specifically, like, whining. I think, actually, we, we had just heard back from the body shop, and they were going to extend another week, and I start crying. So I'm an 18-year-old, whiny baby, and, like, I'm crying almost hysterically. And I'm explaining to my dad how unfair my life is because the new car I have, I can't drive, and I have to drive the car that he had to drive instead. Dad, you get to drive the nice rental car for two weeks, and I have to drive your piece of garbage, right? Now, do you understand how messed up this is? My dad literally, my parents bought me a new car. Now, in order to afford the new car, guess what dad had to drive? The piece of garbage. And so I have to drive it for two weeks. And my life is miserable. And I can just remember, remember just whining. And honestly, in the history of my life, that's the only time I can ever remember my dad raising his voice at me. And I am so glad he did. Like, I can still remember that rebuke in that moment, at that time of going, I am so self-centered. Oh my God, like somehow I missed the whole other world, missed everything else that was going on around me, missed that my dad drove that every day, missed the sacrifice that he was making, missed that he drove without air conditioning and power steering with a suit on every day to work in the, in, in the South, in Georgia, right? All summer long, and I am whining and crying about how hot I am in my shorts and my, I'm pretty sure I had one of those muscle shirts on, tank top, right? Just whining. And I can remember him just rebuking me. And you go, ah, this is exactly what Joseph needed. But it doesn't get any better because he doesn't go, hey, brothers, I'm really sorry for doing that. That was really obnoxious of me. Again, completely unaware. I was pretty unaware then. Still unaware about some things, right? But in that moment, dad gave me a little bit of awareness. Can still remember it. The only time I can remember being rebuked. Some of you got those. You remember it. And I was like, oh, wow. But anyway, so he gets rebuked. And they hated him more because of it. And they should have. Well, your mother and I, brothers actually bow down. And watch what it says, verse 11. His brothers were jealous of him, but his father kept the matter in mind. So all that means is his dad just kept it up there on the back burner. He just was aware of, he just remember, can recall the story. It was just up there somewhere, right? He just, so the brothers just were angry and jealous and hateful. Dad's like, oh, that's interesting. I'm, I'll remember that. There we go. So now, let's see all the stuff going on, right? All the stuff. And so we see this do Joseph, and what we're starting to pick up on is that um, Joseph needs uh, to get some learning and some awareness, which is what we all need, right? I mean, one of the great parts of maturing and getting our frontal lobe developed, which doesn't happen into your 20s, so I think part of the, your um, job as parents, my job as a parent is to just keep guardrails and bumpers around our kids till they can get that whole brain formed, right? And so part of that is trying to guard them while they develop some awareness and start realizing things, maturing, understanding that the world's not about them, right? This egocentricism, you start out with, if I can see the TV, everybody else can see the TV. But that's just not true. And what you hope for your kiddos is eventually they understand when they stand in front of the TV, no one else can see it, right? And there's a really simple solution. Just throw things at them hard until they move, right? And so hopefully those things are happening. And so um, what we can start picking up on Joseph, this guy that we consider this great man of God, integrity, all sorts of stuff that you know about Joseph's story, it starts with a sociopathic, narcissistic, self-centered braggart. So, maybe God could be up to something in what he's going to be orchestrating. You're like, that's still not nice of him to throw him and make him a slave and throw him in prison. Okay, stay with me. Let's see what happens next. Now, one thing I just want to point out here is when you, when you read the Bible, particularly the story, this is a narrative. This is a story. 
And uh, it's actually real people's lives. And in the New Testament, Jesus tells stories that are actually stories. They're, 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 they're allegories. They're parables. They're not true. And the reason that these stories happen in the New Testament, that Jesus shares them, is he understands it's really hard when you confront someone for anything to ever change. Right? Have you ever actually just told someone to change their behavior? And they go, okay, I'll do that. Right? Like there's just something about coming to a conclusion on your own that helps you make some adjustments. So when Jesus tells parables in the New Testament, he's hoping that you identify yourself with one of the people in the parable. Hopefully not the person that plays God, because that's not who you are, right? And so in this story, this is a real story, but it's a narrative, and so we're going to see a couple things. Is Joseph is going to learn experientially, meaning he's going to learn as he gets older and the experiences he has, and I believe Moses' hope is we would also learn from Joseph's story as well. Now, the other thing I'd say about the Bible is, if you think of the Bible as this kind of this rule book, this how-to guide, you know, instruction manual, all that's false. The whole story of the Bible is about broken people who cannot fix themselves and a hero who saves the day. Whole Old Testament, broken people who cannot fix themselves, including Joseph, including Jacob, including Esau, including Abraham, including everyone, every single name in this Bible, every name that shows up, Old Testament, New Testament, those are all very broken people who cannot fix themselves. So that would be the entire human race. If our names are in the Bible, it'd be there for the same reason. Broken people who cannot fix themselves and a hero, Jesus, who actually can. So this whole Bible is one story explaining to us, hopefully through some discovery that we can't fix ourselves and causing us or challenging us to look outside of ourselves for some kind of salvation and to consider maybe that God himself would come and save us. Whole Bible about that. So this story would be a, a nice little uh, motif or picture of the same big picture of the Bible all falls right here in this story over these chapters. And so one of the things I want you to see here, this is really important. Is remember that word providence, that God sees all things and he's working in all things. I want you to, as we read these next few verses, I want you to see how many series of unfortunate events happen. And they happen in a way that if they don't happen, uh, the whole family, all of Egypt, the whole world would be wrecked. I mean, the entire economy would have busted back then. Everybody in this family, which has a lineage of Jesus, they all would have died. So there are some crazy circumstances that all have to happen in a certain sequence of events for this to take place. Which means, even in this story and all the brokenness, what we can say is God is actually orchestrating these things. Which, you're going to ask the question, and we'll get to it in a second, of, wait, is God doing it or do we do it? Great question, and the answer is yes. There we go. Um, So, verse 12 Now his brothers had gone to graze their father's flocks. When you see that word graze, it means to eat. They're not eating the flocks. That's what's happening. That's like to say to take them out to pasture, okay? Graze their father's flocks near Shechem. And Israel said to Joseph, as you know, your brothers are grazing the flocks near Shechem. And Joseph's like, why are they eating the sheep? Joseph, that's not what I mean. Oh, sorry, dad. Come, I am going to send you to them. Very well, he replied. That's nice manners. Verse 14, so he said to him, this is Joseph about to send him out there, go and see if all is well with your brothers and with the flocks and bring word back to me. So what we know now is all the brothers leave Joseph. So he's all alone and dad's like, go check on him. So he's going, okay, I guess I'll go check on him. So that's the first part of the sequence. Dad tells Joseph to go check on him. So, and he'll go and bring word. Then he sent him off from the valley of Hebron. When Joseph arrived at Shechem, a man found him wandering around in the fields, asked him, what are you looking for? I'm telling you, this guy, he's not smart early on. So he's walking around and nobody's there. So he's just walking around the field, looking around like, brothers, are you under there? Like, 
So he's just standing there in the middle of a field. No one's there, and he doesn't know what to do. He's like, do I go home? Do I stay here? Like, he's completely clueless. This is not a bright guy, right? And he's like, uh. And by happenstance, coincidence, whatever word you want to use here, some stranger shows up and says, what are you looking for? He replied, I'm looking for my brothers. Can you tell me where they are grazing their flocks? Wait, are they eating their flocks? What? No, 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 no. You're right. Okay. Can you tell me where they're grazing their flocks? So this random stranger shows up. Joseph doesn't know what to do. And so he's just staying there. He shows up and he says, can you tell me where my brothers are? Have you seen that? Remember that little children's books? They're like, are you my mother? Remember that thing? It's like, are, are you my brother? <laughs> you know, like poor Joseph in this situation. Okay, here he is. Okay. Can you tell me where they're grazing? And he says, they have moved on from here. The man answered, I heard them say, let's go to Dothan. So imagine how strange this is already. Joseph is wandering around the field. Some random guy shows up. He just happened to see them earlier and happened to be eavesdropping on them and know where they happened to be going, right? So he's like, oh, I heard them because I was hiding behind that rock listening and they said they were going to Dothan. Or your brother's just walking around screaming out loud, we're going to Dothan. Whatever it is, I don't know. All of a sudden, here's another part of the coincidence that these guys, he tells them they're going to Dothan. So Jacob, I guess, decides to go to Dothan. Verse 18 But they saw him in the distance. So he's walking out there. And before he reached them, they plotted to kill him. Kill him. They want to kill him, right? So they plotted to kill him. So they got this plan. Hey, we should kill our brother. We don't like him. Here comes that dreamer. Wow, they're so mean with those words. Here comes that dreamer. They said to each other, come now. Let's kill him and throw him into one of these cisterns and say that a ferocious animal devoured him. Then we'll see what comes of his dreams. So here's what's really interesting is you understand that cisterns are like what you get water from. So they're like, let's throw a dead guy into a cistern and let his body rot and everybody drink his blood. You know, like this is all sorts of messed up in so many ways. So they have decided as horrible human beings that they're going to kill their brother, throw him in a cistern and blame it on a ferocious lion. Rawr. Okay. Uh, it says animal, but uh, then we'll see what comes of his dreams. Oh, that's pretty interesting. So they have a plan. When Reuben heard this, he tried to rescue, from, uh, rescue him from their hands. Reuben's one of the brothers and eventually becomes a sandwich. Let's not take his life, he said. Don't shed any blood. Throw him into the cistern here in the wilderness, but don't lay a hand on him, he says. Reuben said this to rescue him from them and take, back, uh, take him back to his father. So he's going, hey, we don't. We don't need to kill him. Let's just let nature do its thing. Just throw him in a cistern. And either he'll, he'll drown or he'll uh, die there. And so we wouldn't actually kill him. We just go, oops. Right? So Reuben has this great plan. And now he's going to come back and save his brother later. Right? Pretty interesting. So Reuben doesn't want to do it. So another bit of happenstance. Ten of the brothers, nine of the brothers, they want to kill him. All of a sudden Reuben shows up and says, ah, let's not do that. So when Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him of his robe the ornate robe he was wearing. Now you understand, Joseph's like, I'm going to go find my brothers. I wonder what I should wear today. <laughs> Puts on the fancy robe and walks out there. No reason, that, no wonder they saw him coming from a long way away. And so they see him there with his robe he was wearing and they took him and they threw him into the cistern. So they had, uh, took the robe, threw him into the cistern. Now watch this. This is interesting. The cistern was empty. Meaning, the, the Bible, Moses wants you to know this, there is no water in it. So, if Joseph's going to be thrown in the place and be stuck there for a while, if it has water, he's treading water for a long time in that well, right? 
Lassie's going to go tell somebody that there's a boy in the well, but no one's going to come save the day. And this guy, he's going he's to drown, right? And so Moses is like, here's another bit of happenstance. They throw him into an empty well. Now there's empty wells, there are cisterns, that's a possibility all over the place. You can't get out. And what lives on there is scorpions. So you get a whole other situation. So I don't know. Luckily, he doesn't get bit by those. And so all this is going on. They leave him there, and they're just going, going to let nature do its thing, right? So again, horrific. They're not going to put him out of his misery. They're going to let him live in that misery till he dies of starvation, drowning, whatever you want to imagine. It's pretty horrific. And so that's what the brothers decide to do. <laughs> What's so interesting? Verse 25. As they sat down to eat their meal. So they're like, oh, let's kill our brother. Hey, who wants a sandwich? Like, you understand, like, these are, this is a broken, broken family. And so they sit down to eat some food together. And, you know, the robe's over there, and they're all trying it on. And one of them's really big, and he's like, I'm a big man in a little coat. You know, all sorts of stuff going on there. And they're having fun with the robe, all sorts of stuff. They're sitting there and having their meal. They looked up, and they saw a caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead. So there's a whole crew of people. These are like gypsies, right? They're traveling back and forth to Egypt, and they're going to sell stuff. Now, what you should know about Ishmaelites is they come from Ishmael. That's why they're called Ishmaelites, which happened to be Abraham's first son before Isaac. Remember, he slept with his, uh, his slave, his wife's maidservant, and they had a kid. Eventually, the, the wife, Sarah, gets really angry and has him banished. And so God blesses Ishmael and sends him out in the distance. And so this whole nation or this whole tribe of people, 100, 200 years later, nail of Ishmaelites. So even this... Don't know how long it was planned. Don't know if God knew that he was going to use Ishmaelites when he sends Ishmael out there. But you've got Ishmaelites out in the middle of nowhere, and they're in their caravan, okay? And they're, uh, so all of them are traveling together, and here's what happens. Coming from Gilead, their camels were loaded with spices, balm, and myrrh, and they were on their way to take them down to Egypt. Yeah, this is just, you know, this is bonus material. They have myrrh, and they're going to Egypt, for mummies. Isn't that awesome? Myrrh is what you embalm people with. And so, oh, look, there's mummies in the Bible. Thanks, Ishmaelites. And so they were on their way to take them down to Egypt for mummification. I added that part myself. Dinner time, they're eating Ishmaelites. Got all that going on. This is, so they're running these people. And they're like, hey, that's my great-great-uncle's kids, grandkids. Like the, so they're like, they're my cousins. All this is happening right there. Judah said to his brother. So you got Reuben who's starting to think, ah, this isn't a good idea. Judah has another good idea. What if we, what will we gain if we kill our brother and cover up his blood? What do we gain from that? Come, let's tell him to the Ishmaelites and not lay our hands on him. After all, he is our brother, our own flesh and blood. His brothers agreed. So you don't know if Judah's being nice or if he just is like, I'd actually like to make some money. If we kill him, we make nothing. Guys, we shouldn't kill our brother. Let's sell him. So now they decide to sell him. So again, look at all this weird happenstance. They had to be sitting at the right spot, eating the food, where all these, this caravan comes through, and they're like, ah, we could sell him to the Ishmaelites. And then um, here's what we see next. Come, let's sell him to the Ishmaelites and not lay our hands on him. After all, he is our brother, our own flesh and blood. His brothers agreed. So when the Midianite merchants came by, his brothers pulled Joseph up out of the cistern and sold him for 20 shekels of silver to the Ishmaelites who took him to Egypt. So something's going on here, not really important, but I don't want you to get confused. So it says, okay, Ishmaelites, then it points out in a different group, the Midianites. Okay, you got Ishmaelites and Midianites. If you trace back to the beginning, Abraham had lots of sons, or lots of ch- kids. The first one was Ishmael. A little bit later, after he had Isaac, he had Midian. And so they're kind of neighbors. These are kind of relatives. And these two groups sort of traveled together. So the Ishmaelites were, um, they... They would be selling things. They would be setting up shop and, you know, having a retail store of selling their gold or frankincense, myrrh, or whatever. You got those things, right? Now, the Midianites, it says we're merchants. So these guys are like the brokers. So the way you can think about it is um, 
Uh, the Ishmaelites bought houses and flipped them. And uh, the Midianites were the real estate brokers that sold the houses, okay? That's not, I mean, that's how it works. So the Midianites were kind of just like a, the way I do it. And so the Ishmaelites would have wanted to purchase something to see if they could get a gain on it later. The Midianites are the ones that handle the transactions, right? And so the Midianites show up like, hey, those Ishmaelites, y'all are all traveling together. The other thing, they travel together for, for protection, right? And so they all travel together. Hey, we have a good sale. Would you like to broker a deal to the Ishmaelites for our slave, Joseph, right? So you can see all that, and it says they sold him for 20 uh, shekels of silver. Well, in Amos, uh, a little bit later in scriptures, it references this, and it says that they sold it for, uh, there was 20 shekels of silver, and they spent two shekels each, or two silver each, on a pair of sandals. So another piece of trivia here is literally, they sell this guy, and what they get for their brother is a pair of sandals. That's it, right? Don't have a brother anymore. They sell up for a pair of sandals. And uh, now watch this. When Reuben returned to the cistern and saw that Joseph was not there, he tore his clothes. That's uh, something in, in Jewish culture. That's called kriya. It's where you, you grieve and mourn by literally exposing your heart. So he tore his clothes. So he's actually sad by this. He went back to his brothers and said, the boy isn't there. Where can I turn now? He's not there. Where can I turn now? Then they got Joseph's robe, slaughtered a goat, and dipped the robe in the blood. So now there's an animal that sacrifices as a result of their sin, right? They, they slaughtered a goat, dipped the robe in blood. They took the ornate robe back to their father and said, we found this. Examine it to see whether it's your son's robe. It's a true story, and it is really, 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 really messed up. Right? So this is crazy, crazy circumstances. Now you imagine, they wanted to kill him. Joseph had to go. He had to find them. They had to, you know, medit- premeditatively plan a murder and then a slave sale. So you get all sorts of crazy stuff. Uh, and it says this, um, Israel, or uh, Jacob said, he recognized it and said, it's my son's robe. Some ferocious animal, a lion, roar, has devoured him. Joseph has surely been tore to pieces. Then Jacob tore his clothes. He's grieving. Put on a sackcloth. That's very uh, common in that culture. And mourned for his son many days. So this is, this is real pain. This is real sorrow. So you've got you now brothers who are got complex, uh, hidden sin in their lives. They've got new shoes, but complex, hidden sin. You've got a dad who is completely devastated and thinks he lost his son. So, I mean, there are real sad ramifications for this. And this is what it says next. Verse 35. All his sons and daughters came to comfort him. But he refused to be comforted. Just deep pain. Stay away from me. No, he said, I will continue to mourn until I join my son in the grave. So the father wept for him. Meanwhile, the Midianites sold Joseph in Egypt to Potiphar, one of Pharaoh's officials, the captain of the guard. Okay, so they're all grieving. And all of a sudden, now we got little Joseph, 17-year-old boy, who's now been ushered into slavery. And he finds himself a slave. So that's the whole chapter. And so one of the questions is, okay, did God do that or did people do that? I mean, God surely didn't make Joseph become a slave, right? I mean, God, God didn't force that on them. Like, God didn't, like, hop in those guys' heads and kind of with a remote control make these, you know, these brothers horrible human beings, right? God didn't force Jacob to have a favorite. So you're going, okay, did, so God didn't do that, but I thought you said that God bends and shapes and he kind of orchestrated that. There was a lot of circumstances that had to happen in the same way. Did, did he kind of tell the Canaanites or the, I'm sorry, the Ishmaelites and the Midianites that when to show up? I mean, did they, he put that stranger in the field? I mean, what is God doing and what are people doing here? And I would say, this is what's pretty 
impressive about God? Is that somehow he bends and shapes all things for our good and his glory while giving human beings the opportunity to make decisions. Now, here's what God knows about human beings. This is really important. So this is where lots of times in the church world you go, there's this conversation of what's called free will. Do people have free will or does God force things? Because if people don't have free will, then God chooses some to go to heaven and the rest to go to hell. I mean, there's all sorts of stuff. So you go, does God, do people have free will? And here's what I'd offer to you. Yes, they do. But here's the reality of what our free will does for us. It leads us down a path of despair and destruction. Every single time. I have absolutely free will, but if you leave me to my own vices, I will choose over and over again to destroy my own life. And if you look at human beings throughout human history with the first families, what you see is over and over again when people choose their own uh, pleasure, their own pride, their own past, over and over again, what happens is people always end up in destruction. If you have your way at all times and do whatever you want whenever you want to, it will end badly for you. So God, who is perfect, always knows what's going to happen with us because our choice is going to be to choose our own pleasure and our own gain over God every single time, and it's always going to lead to despair. So what God is always working in, you know, remember, this is providence, bending and shaping things. God is always working in our despair and bending and shaping it for his glory and our good, right? So in every circumstance, what happens is we kind of go astray and God pulls us back. Like when I was little, uh, when Briggs was little, we had a go-kart at our house in Somerville, and he was like five and couldn't drive it. It was dangerous, but, you know, all of his friends were like three, and they were running tractors, so I felt like he should get to do something. And so what I'd do, <laughs> so ridiculous that I'd do it, um, is I would allow him to get in his, uh, his go-kart, and he would get in it, and I would have this big rope, like a big rope that I had tied around my waist, and I had it tied to the back of this <laughs> this go-kart and I mean he would drive it and I just ru- I'd sprint around him and he'd get off track and I'd kind of pull back and there are times I was falling on the ground because I wanted him to be able to drive it and he thought he was driving it but the reality is he was tethered to me he was tethered to me he was driving he was pressing the gas he was turning the steering wheel all that's true he was driving it but I was protecting it you see so like literally what God knows about us is our choices are always going to go down terrible paths and yet we're tethered to God and he continues to pull us back he continues to bring us back on the road he continues when we veer off to kind of straighten the path and so over and over and over again you've seen the story of Joseph and these brothers where they make horrible decisions and while they're making horrible decisions God you'll see it in Genesis chapter 50 later in a couple weeks that God actually intended to take those horrible circumstances and always turn them to good Romans eight twenty eight says for we know that God works all things together for the good for those who love him, who are called according to his purpose. So there's always this passage or this path where we always are doing the wrong thing and God is bending and shaping it. This is really good news for us. Because what that means is while we have our own freedom, we don't have enough freedom to wreck our own lives. So God gives us complete freedom and yet tethers ourselves to him so that he can continue to bend and shape things for our good. Here's what that means for you. You cannot destroy your own life. God is so gracious that he is bending and shaping it, and he is a perfect steward of all those things, and he wastes nothing. So if you made bad decisions, God is bending and shaping them for his, our good and his glory. If other people made bad decisions, that affects you and hurt, and they're real, and they do hurt. God has even taken those moments, and he is not going to waste them. He's not going to waste the pain. He's not going to do those things. In fact, I, I've been sharing with you um, a couple weeks back. I kind of shared with you my story of Kind of when we're talking about just the blessing and the thing that words do, I share with you that when I was uh, 21, I got married. Um, within a couple of months, my wife had left me. Left me. Uh, said I never loved you. Horrible moments in life. And 
Um, and then after that, like uh, a couple years later, a year later, I met Julie. We dated, got married, and now here we are in 2019. Three kids, beautiful church, beautiful family. Couldn't have dreamt of any of that stuff, right? All that kind of stuff. And I'm going, did, did God do all that? Like, did God want me to get married? Because I go back, and I'm like, I actually became a youth pastor. And because I became a youth pastor, I was able to meet Julie at a youth camp. And then we were able to find each other. But the thing is that the number one qualifier, it should have been be a Christian, but the number one qualifier on the, the church's list of what they wanted in a youth pastor, because they had some bad experiences with single folks, was that they had to be married. Like, I would not have been hired, would not have even been considered if I were single. And I'm like, well, did, did, so did God orchestrate that? Did he take all that? I'm like, I don't think God forced all that, but somehow, even in all those messy circumstances, it's like, well, I mean, I'd made some bad decisions in that marriage. Literally, I had a sister, close sister, uh, my oldest sister, who I love dearly. She would not come to the wedding because she was like, this, this is not appropriate. And your parents won't tell you because they're cowards, but this is a bad relationship and is going to end badly for you. I cannot support this. I'm going to do it anyway. I'm going to do it anyway. Like in my non-frontal lobe, fully developed, in the middle of my arrogance and pride. I can fix anything. Like literally. So it wasn't like I was really godly and all that stuff happened. I made some poor decisions that led to that scenario. And you go, well, but I don't know how I got here except through there. And I'm not telling you, if you're a Christian, you know that story. You can look back towards some really horrible things that happened in your life. And you go, boy, that was painful but I'm so glad it happened. Boy, that was painful, but I wouldn't change it for anything, but I don't know how I get here without there, right? And so just a story of the gospel is, man, we're not really good at someone just coming in and telling us something. We go, oh, we should change. What we do is we do it experientially, right? And so the, this experience that shapes us, it hurts, and it is really painful, and it stinks when you're right in the middle of it, which is why you need a church community, right? Because could imagine going through that by yourself, right? That's why we need all those things. And yet, we look back in retrospect and go, I didn't like it. It hurt. I don't want to do that again. But it made me a different person. I came out of there different than I would be. That's God's providence. I'm not saying God caused it, but I'm saying he's not going to waste it, right? And so in this story, I'm not sure exactly how it works. He's, you know, Israel is, shows favoritism. Jacob's a punk kid. You know, his brothers are all yeah, filled with hate in their heart. All that is sinful, and yet God is such a perfect steward. He takes that story and he redeems it. And you go, well, what is he actually redeeming it to? Like, what's his motivation in that? Well, um, uh, chapter 38 is next. We'll get talked about that at the very end. And that's a, like, meanwhile, back at the ranch story. So there's something going on in a different story. Crazy, crazy story. And then chapter 39, it picks up back on Joseph's story. And we find Joseph now. He is a slave in Potiphar's house. Remember, he's an arrogant punk, narcissistic, sociopathic, you know, self-centered, unaware kid. And all of a sudden, he finds himself in slavery. And you go, what is God doing here? And I just want to read it to you. This is what happens next. This is Genesis chapter 39, beginning in verse 1. It says, Now Joseph had been taken down to Egypt. Potiphar, an Egyptian who was on the, one of Pharaoh's officials, the captain of the guard, bought him from the Ishmaelites who had taken him there. So the Ishmaelites like, ah, oh, we can flip this slave. So they take him and sell him. The Lord was, see this, with Joseph so that he prospered. And he li lived in the house of the Egyptian master. When his master saw that the Lord was with him, and that the Lord gave him success in everything he did, Joseph found favor in his eyes and became his attendant. Potiphar put him in charge of his household, and he entrusted to his care everything he owned. From the time he put him in charge of the household and all that he owned, the Lord blessed the household and of the Egyptian because of Joseph. The blessing of the Lord was on everything Potiphar had, both in the house and in the field. So Joseph gets taken away from being the, the proud kid who has everything, the nice car, all the focus, to now he becomes a slave. In the middle of a slavery, what he finds is that God is actually there with him. And 
a lot of our experience and our suffering is we find God in the middle of those places. Like uh, one of the most fabulous things about my wife's story is um, her family decided to literally move from the U.S. to Finland. Some of that was uh, just kind of regroup and recalibrate and realign the family. And when you go to a foreign country, and there's all sorts of pain and sorrow. I mean, she was a freshman in high school when this stuff happened. And no one speaks your language. Like, could you imagine even like the frustration you have towards your father who forced that decision, not understanding. But what she'll tell you about her story is in the middle of that, because she had nothing else other than a, a Bible to read that was in English. It was the most transformative time of her upbringing where she knew that the Lord was with her. What happens is in the middle of our brokenness, in the middle of our sorrow, we finally go, okay, 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 this isn't working out. I'm not in charge. This isn't what I thought it was. I'm not in control. And then finally we look up and go, God, you got to fix this. You know, it's crazy. He always fixes it. He always fixes it. Not in the way that you would fix it, not in the timing you want him to, but he always fixes it. In fact, it gets worse for Joseph again, right? His, uh, Potiphar's wife is smitten with him and makes him, you know, uh, really harasses him and comes after him sexually. And, and uh, Joseph now all of a sudden is turning into this godly dude going, no, I want to please God. I've had some time with God. I want to please God. I can't do it. And he flees. Really, really great decision. And so Potiphar's wife in shame blames him for sexual assault. And Potiphar literally throws him in prison. So he finds himself in prison. You go, gosh, there's some suffering. Now watch what happens after he's in prison. This is verse 20. Joseph's master took him and put him in prison, the place where the king's prisoners were confined. But while Joseph was there in prison, the Lord was with him. The Lord was with him. He showed him kindness and granted him favor in the eyes of the prison warden. So the warden put Joseph in charge of all this held in prison, and he was made responsible for all that was done there. The warden paid no attention to anything under Joseph's care. Why? Because the Lord was with Joseph and gave him success in whatever he did. You see, Joseph's whole life was about him, focused on him, and all of a sudden he loses everything. And in that humility, he realizes it's really not about him. And he cries out and he goes, I don't know what's going on here. I'm not in charge. And in that moment, in that moment of admission, in that moment of weakness, what we see over and over again throughout this period of time with Joseph is every time God was with him. You see, God's number one motivation is you and him forever. God's number one motivation for your heart is that he wants his presence with you and your presence with him forever, forever. So we're not talking about birth to death, 60, 70, 80 years. What we're talking about, God is bending and shaping all things. Not so you get a new car, not so life's easy, because he wants you and him together forever, right? And so what we see is this glimpse. Remember, this is micro, this is not macro, where God shows up and goes, in the middle of all these circumstances, you've been looking for joy and pleasure and all sorts of things, but you cannot find them in any of those things, Joseph. But what I can give you that nothing else will satisfy in the way that this will is I can give you my presence. Because what happened in the garden is things were good when I walked in the garden in the cool of the night with you and your people, Adam and Eve. Everything was good. And then you got banished from my presence. And then everything got messy. And so what we see throughout the scriptures is God continues to invade our broken moments. When we are the most vulnerable and volatile. And in those moments, what he actually gives us is not an answer, but his presence. You know, as a pastor, I used to go into hospitals when people have bad things. And I felt like my job was to give them answers. But if you've been in that circumstance, you know you don't want answers. You know what you want? Presence. You just want someone to sit there with you. And so what this does for suffering is I can't give you all the answers to what, why suffering happens, how it happens. I'll just tell you, when you find yourself in that place, you're not looking for an answer. What you're actually looking for is God's presence. Because this goal, 
And if he's got to use suffering to get it, to help you get shaped, if God's got to use some horrible relational circumstances in my life to finally humble me enough to realize that I am not as special as I thought I was, right? If God's got to do that, because his number one goal was for me to be humble before him so that his presence can be available to me, then he'll do whatever it takes because his goal was you and him forever. And if that takes some broken, complicated circumstances that we did to ourselves, then God will use that because he's a perfect steward. And you go, well, how do I know that? Well, it's interesting. And the band's going to come back up here and we're going to sing a song together. Chapter 38 of the scriptures are, of Genesis are just nuts. So you've got the story, Joseph gets sold into slavery. As he gets sold into slavery, what happens is um, he's going to Potiphar's house and then chapter 38, it's almost like it takes a big left turn. And all of a sudden we see the story of what's happening back at the ranch with one of Je- uh, Joseph's brother, Judah. By the way, it's through Judah's line that Jesus shows up, okay? And so Judah, and uh, so the stories of Judah and this lady named Tamar. Tamar is married to J- uh, Judah's oldest son. And he's a horrible human being and then he dies. So then Judah says, hey Tamar, marry my second son. So then he m- marries the second son to take care of it. And this guy takes advantage of her sexually, all sorts of different things, but refuses to allow her to have a child. And mistreats her. He dies too. And so all of a sudden, she's just alone going, no one will ever love me. What do I do? Hey, Judah, what can I do? And Judah goes, go back to your home. Go back to your home. He makes some promises that he's not going to provide. And then meanwhile, Judah's wife dies. So now Judah is a widower. And he's in all sorts of pain. And he's sexually frustrated. And he misses things. So you know what he decides to do? He decides to go to a neighboring community where he's going to hire a prostitute. Well, Tamar understands this and thinks, oh, maybe I can finally have a kid through this family. And so she veils herself and dresses up like a prostitute to sleep with Judah. Do you understand? Daughter-in-law sleeps with the father. All sorts of crazy, all sorts of messed up. And then she gets pregnant. Then about three months later, people start talking about it and rumors happen that she's pregnant. And Judah finds out it's because she was a prostitute. And he's like, kill her. And she's like, by the way, you left your ID, not really ID, but literally something to prove that he was the father, like a DNA test, Maury Provich. You're the father. And in that moment, in that moment, what happens here is Judah goes, oh, what am I going to do? I can't kill you. You're right. I'm wrong. Literally, in this moment, he declares his wrongness. And the little baby's name is Perez. And Perez is going to have kids. You're going to have kids. You're going to have kids who eventually, one of their kids is going to have Jesus. So God takes the most broken, messed up story filled with hate and vitriol and sin. And through that story, he goes, I'm going to use this story to show you how much I want to be with you, me and you forever. And so he ushers in his presence and he literally brings Jesus back onto this planet to live with us, to model his way and look you in the face and say, there is nothing you could do to make me love you any less. God, forgive them. There's... They don't know what they're doing and God brings Jesus to usher in his presence and he decides to use this really, really broken family, which means if he can use that broken family, he'll use your broken family too. So where there was no way, oh, God made a way. And that promise that he made is still there. He is still faithful and is still available to us. And so what we're going to do is we're going to sing about that promise that God made thousands of years ago, that he made true through Jesus and makes Jesus available to you. And what the Bible says, whoever calls upon the name of the Lord, the old they're saved. And that word Lord means just boss. And I imagine sometime in that story, Joseph basically said, God, I'm not in control. I'm not the boss I need you to be. Whoever calls upon the name of the Lord is saved. So in the middle of our suffering, that's where we look up and go, God, I'm not in control. Can you fix this? And guess what he does? He invades our time. And the way that he fixes us is with his presence. So we get to walk with him. And now it begins to you and him forever. Right now. So would you stand with me as we sing?
So that's suffering in your life. I'm not sure God causes it, okay? But I am sure that he will cause it to work together for your good. So I'm not sure that he causes it, but I am confident that he will cause it to work together for your good. If you'll let him, if you'll submit to that. And in the middle of it, it's really nice to say, oh, yeah, my life's so good. Thank you, God. But in the middle of it, it's just not that simple. And so that's why I think church family is so important. So if, you, if you're in the middle of whatever struggle it is, please, please, please. The Bible says it's not good for man, mankind, that's men and women to be alone. And so what he's given us is a family to do this together. And so if there's anything we can do to support you in the middle of that, we want to, you can write down the back of the, your card. be happy to pray or connect with you. Or right now as people are heading that way, we have people right here to my right and be happy to talk to God on your behalf alongside you and pray with you on whatever that is. And so that's, the, that's what we would love for you to consider. Now, in a few weeks, we'll start Calback. That's Connect on Wednesday, but we don't have it this week. But there is Celebrate Recovery starting at uh, 6.15 here, and there'll be a meal before then. And then this Friday night, outside, if the weather permits, if not, it'll be in here, we'll be showing our next fourth Friday flicks. It'll be Spider-Man versus the Spidey-verse or something like that, but it's a neat movie. That's it. You guys have a great week. Uh, I love you all.